Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Thursday, December 2nd, 2021, the birth date of Barbara Sylvia Gatos, my mom, and we will be rebroadcasting the show on Monday, December the 6th, 2021 from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 85th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show is part four of a series of shows entitled Our Addictive Culture, Chemical Use and Misuse in the Magical Host, the Human Brain and Body. Our show tonight is focused on alcohol, blood alcohol concentration levels, how we get there, what it takes, how does the body deal with the alcohol we ingest, and we also revisit some components regarding marijuana and describe how chemical dependency is a multifactorial disorder and share those many factors. We also highlight the nature of an addictive culture. Patricia Bucko once again joins us to facilitate the discussion. All this and more. Stay tuned and enjoy. Good evening, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gatos, and our co-host in this important series of alcohol and drug-specific shows, Pat Buckos. I just wanted to mention, Pat, before we got started, that today is December the 2nd that we'll be taping this show to be rebroadcast this Monday, December the 6th, 2021, and I wanted to send out a big... Happy birthday to my mom, who passed away a couple of years ago. Anyhow, big day, big day for me, and wanted to get that on the record. Anyhow, Pat, thank you for joining us once again, and I'm going to turn it over to you to initiate this dialogue. Yes, thank you for having me again, and a big happy birthday to your mom, and big hugs. I'm sending big hugs towards you. Um, Anyway, welcome back to our little mini-series. The mini-series is called Our Addictive Culture, Chemical Use and Misuse, and the Magical Host, the Human Brain and Body. And as usual, I'll do a quick introduction um, for Pedro, and then we'll move on to today's topics. So really quickly, I wanted to mention that Pedro is a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin and has been a certified alcohol and drug abuse counselor since 1985. Pedro also works as an educator using an honest and motivational approach as faculty at Austin Community College, in which he teaches classes on pharmacology, addiction theory, 
and personal growth and was a counselor and advisor with the Travis County justice system for 24 years in which he held state-mandated alcohol and other drug AOD curriculums and advised Travis County judges as to what level of education, counseling, or treatment might be appropriate to meet clients' needs, usually clients with a DWI, as well as safeguard public safety. In addition, Pedro is an inventor of an alcohol and other drug assessment process and author of a cannabis intervention curriculum and founder of the Pedro Gasso's Institute for Addiction, Health, and Social Theory. And, of course, a radio show host of Bringing Light into Darkness. So I wanted to recap a little bit of last week's episode. Um, Last week's episode, we usually talked about kind of drug categories and alcohol for the most part, but last week we talked about marijuana. And so we talked a lot about its status in Texas and, you know, all the pharmacology behind marijuana, but I really wanted to kind of go back to marijuana for a second before we move on to today's topics and ask you more about kind of what is marijuana really effective for, especially with the opioid crisis and whatnot. um, A lot of people sometimes will use marijuana to relieve pain, but is that true? Does marijuana relieve pain? First of all, thanks again, Pat, for being part of this important series, a very big part of this important series of shows. Yeah, to your question, we talked generally about how now there's, what, some 36 states that have medical marijuana laws. And so there are a number of different legislative states' legal uses for marijuana, depending on which of these 36 medical marijuana states and and or Washington, D.C. you live in. So not everything is a doctor can prescribe for, right? So most, I think like Massachusetts is like a state where whatever the doctor wants to prescribe it for, they can, but most every other state are restricted. You know, it's like X, Y, or Z, most famously probably for like chemotherapy, the nausea associated with that. You know, you take, mm-hmm. you know, you can prescribe it ahead of the treatment to help mitigate that, that type of thing. So yeah, pain is also another major one. And not just the THC, but I think the CBD also has pain mitigating characteristics. Right. I believe that I'm not fully sure on this, but I believe CBD is also helps like relax muscles, I believe. Yeah. I'm not yeah, sure if that, yeah. yeah. No, 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 you're right. You're right. One of the biggest, probably one of the the major medical benefits from marijuana has to do with these neuromuscular disorders, which are very difficult to treat. So particularly the pain associated and the discomforts with spasticity and those types of things. So the CBD and the THC and other cannabinoids help that. But those are the two main cannabinoids that are respectfully addressing the, the pain issue. But what I wanted to also include was there were some studies, multiple studies, that have indicated that in these states where marijuana is legal for pain medication, in a couple of these areas, there was a significant decline in the amount of opiate consumption that went on, right? So if I am in a state in which I am not legally allowed to use marijuana and I have to rely solely on my opioids, it seems to suggest very clearly that when you combine marijuana with the opioids, you end up turning to the opioids less often and in less quantities. So that's a very promising development that certainly when you talk about pain relief, that's pain right. is something that needs to be relieved in many cases. So I just wanted to, to mention 
that relationship to the pain reduction in combination with opioids, which is a big, big problem, as you know, in our culture. Right. Yeah, that's very interesting. Okay, so a marijuana can still be addictive, and we talked about this last week. And then addiction usually leads to larger consumption. And I was wondering, because there have been reports um, that suggest that heavy marijuana use can cause sterility. So can Mm -hmm. you talk about that? Is that a fact? Or is it just uncertain research? Or is it straight fiction? First of all, that is something that's been reported. Now, what we can say is clearly that marijuana reduces the motility of sperm, okay? Mm-hmm. Which, which reminds me of a question. This is a pop quiz for you. Why does it take millions of sperm to fertilize a single egg? Probably because it takes a certain positioning and... Um I'm not sure, actually. So actually, I really, I, I really enjoy your analytical <laughs> acumen right to the point. Actually, the reason it takes millions of sperm to fertilize a single egg is because none of them will stop to ask for directions. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay, anyhow, back to this issue of does marijuana cause sterility. And it also affects not just the motility of sperm, as I mentioned before, that terrible joke, but also it affects... <laughs> the woman's ability to ovulate. So it does have powerful influences on the endocrine system. Let me put it to to you this way. Let's say you had a couple, and they're heavy smoking marijuana users, okay? And they're trying to, and they want to have a child, but they cannot Mm -hmm. get pregnant. You know, they have not been successfully getting pregnant. If they were to completely quit the pot smoking, the chances of then getting pregnant go up somewhat. I'm not sure what the exact numbers are, but the converse of that, does it cause sterility? Sterility, by definition, means the inability to procreate, and marijuana has not been shown to create sterility, although it has been shown to inhibit getting pregnant. But it does point to the fact that marijuana and its cannabinoids are powerful chemistries that affect not just, as we've mentioned in the last show, we talked about the CB1 receptors located within the brain and central nervous system, but we also mentioned the CB2 receptor sites that are found outside the brain, where THC acts as a a partial agonist at immune cannabinoid receptor sites, and other CB2 receptor sites, which are found predominantly in the spleen, macrophages, and other B and T cells. It's also found in the testes, the heart, the uterus. And we made the observation, and we'll make it again, that the proliferation of these CB2 receptor sites throughout the body explains so many of the alleged medicinal benefits from the marijuana plant. So, no, that mm-hmm. is a that is a fiction. Although it does powerfully affect the endocrine system, which demands respect. And again, we're talking about regular heavy use of marijuana. Right. Interesting. All right. Well, I feel like we covered a lot about marijuana, and I wanted to go back to talking about alcohol, which is what we started with in this mini-series to finish it off. And so I want to go back to, first of all, the history, and then talking about gender differences in alcohol and sobriety and misconceptions of what like sobriety means and sobering up. So first, let's go to the history. So I come from 
an Eastern European family, and alcohol to me it seems like it came like right after. You know, like there's water and alcohol came right after that. So I wanted to ask you, who invented alcohol? Where did it come from? Yeah, that's a very good observation. There first was water and then there was alcohol. Nothing came before water. I mean, I think we can all agree on that. Uh, but with that being said, I asked that question during these classes. Hey, who invented alcohol? And I'll give them a hint. His first name was Bud. Everyone laughs, that type of thing. But no, really, alcohol was not invented. It, it occurs naturally in nature, and the process right. is called fermentation. So if right. you were to go back to maybe the caveman, cavewoman days, if there is such a time period that you would describe in that way, you know, there's probably like, you know, some fruit trees. What it is is that any vegetable, but mainly fruit that has sugar in it, what happens is are these microscopic organisms called yeast, which just means you can't see it with the naked eye, but they, they land on this fruit that might have fallen out of the tree onto a rock or something like that, and they start digesting the sugar of the actual fruit, and they create, through fermentation, ethyl alcohol. That's how ethyl alcohol is created. What's interesting, though, about that is that it can only, it's a self-limiting process that at about 14% or maybe a little bit higher, maybe as much as 16%, the alcohol then kills the yeast, okay? And so you have what's there for fermented products that cannot exceed this 16% or so. So maybe what, right. what the caveman saw, you know, a goat drinking this stuff, and uh, then staggering off and said, hey, let's go try that. You know, that's probably how it got invented. But getting back to this issue uh, of alcohol, so you have a fermented product of some 14 to 16% alcohol. The way you get like 120 proof Jack Daniels or something like that is called dis distillation. And that's a process mm -hmm. in which you take that fermented product of 16%, you put it in some type of container put a fire underneath of it and of course if it's 16 percent alcohol it's you know 84 percent water and the vaporization point for water is what 212 degrees fahrenheit but the mm -hmm. vaporization point for ethyl alcohol as a chemical uh is uh, i think 173 degrees fahrenheit so when you start right. trying to boil off or, or heat this fermented product the first thing that will boil off that it will turn from liquid to gas will be the ethyl alcohol and you capture it you know in those glass tubes or whatever like in the mash deal and then it co mm -hmm. cools off and liquefies back into pure ethyl alcohol so that in a nutshell is a whole fermentation process and the uh, distillation process great thank you for that and now so i'm sorry that i'm jumping all over the place no problem i want to cover all these grounds because so you've mentioned that you worked with clients with DWIs. And the way that a lot of these things are checked, you know, if someone is, like, driving under the influence, they check blood alcohol concentrations. And so I wanted you to talk a little bit about blood alcohol concentrations and how they're measured, how they affect the body, and then whether there are any differences between men and women and the way that alcohol streams through your body and is metabolized. Well, first of all, yeah, in the state of Texas and in most other states, the blood alcohol concentration indication of a intoxicated state is 0.08%. 
Okay, so think of mm-hmm. it this way. That sounds like almost point. It used to be point one zero, right? Uh, mm-hmm. ten, and, and so people think, okay, that's ten percent of your blood is alcohol at point one zero, because that's what the decimal point one zero means. But no, actually, what it means is that point one zero, it's one tenth of one percent. So in other words, if I'm at mm-hmm. a point one zero BAC right now, and you were to drain my blood out of my body for every nine hundred ninety nine drops of pure blood there would be one drop of pure ethyl alcohol that's what a 0.10 means mm-hmm. okay so just to visualize that secondly so what factors affect my blood alcohol concentration well first of all you're right there are differences between men and women but before we go there there are factors that are generally considered in order to determine your blood alcohol level so if for instance number one is is probably body weight because body weight right. is generally a function of what? How much blood is in your body? Bigger person has more blood. The smaller person has sm- a smaller amount. So if they both right. drink the same amount of alcohol over the same period of time, the smaller person's going to have the higher BAC. So when you're trying to figure out blood alcohol levels, then it's weight. It's the time that you're drinking. It's the number of drinks you drank during that one-hour period, let's say and the percentage of alcohol in those drinks, okay? So the stronger the alcoholic beverage and the, the number of ounces of it that you drink, your weight over what type of time period. So th- those are the major factors. Now, one thing people get a little confused about is the intake of food. Does food, does it keep you from getting intoxicated? Actually, it does not. But it Mm -hmm. does something that's very important, which is that it slows down the absorption of the alcohol into the bloodstream. So remember, intoxication is an impact on the brain. And before a drug can get to the brain, it has to get to the blood. And before it gets to the blood, you have to ingest it in some way. Like, let's say we're taking a drink, a glass of wine. Well, that glass of wine goes into my stomach. Now, let's say I have just eaten a sandwich or, or, or I'm eating dinner and I'm drinking a glass of wine, well, now the way the body's digestive process works is you chew up this food, right? And you, I don't want to be too graphic, but you have saliva mm-hmm. in your mouth that immediately starts breaking down this food as well, these enzymes in the saliva, that is. And then you swallow it. It goes into your stomach, okay? And then you have stomach acids that are further breaking things down, Okay, and then at the bottom of your stomach is a a valve. It's called the pyloric valve, P-Y-L-O-R-I-C. And if I'm eating food, what will happen is that the contents of my stomach will more slowly go to my intestine. Okay, and that's Mm -hmm. important because once it gets to my intestine, that's really where the food and the alcohol, like 80%, for instance, of all the alcohol is absorbed in your small intestine, okay, into your bloodstream. So only until it get, anything that slows down the uh, the emptying of your stomach to the small intestine slows down the absorption of alcohol into your blood and delivered to your brain. So that's an important concept. So if you're drinking on an empty stomach, right, it'll get to your right. intestine more quickly. In fact, if you drink a carbonated alcoholic beverage, like a glass of champagne mm-hmm. on an empty stomach, it even gets faster because the carbonation relaxes that pyloric valve as well. Finally, in the small intestine, that's really where you have other intestinal enzymes and other things breaking things down as well. You know, you have like a 
people have heard of the term pancreas. It creates mm-hmm. insulin, but it also creates some of the digestive enzymes, too, that feed into that system. So when you talk about blood alcohol concentration, the amount of blood I have in my body and the, the speed in which it gets to my small intestine. So if I'm eating, it'll slow down absorption. It will not keep me from getting intoxicated. Uh, you know, it's not right. like one hamburger, one drink, one hamburger, one drink. <laughs> one hamburger. You know, that's just going to get you sick. Right. <laughs> but the, the difference between men and women is substantial. Number one, some of the alcohol gets broken down in our stomachs as men and women. But there is a difference. This, I think it's the alcohol dehydrogenous enzyme that's in your stomach as well as other parts of your body. But for a guy, I think it's close to 6 to 8% of all alcohol that I would drink would get broken down in my stomach. So it's not even going to get to my bloodstream, okay? Uh-huh. For a woman, it, it, it's considerably less, probably in the 2 to 3% range. So, so anytime, uh-huh. you, you know, you, for, so rule number one, sometimes they have these wheels that it says, how many drinks did you have over how many hours? And that'll tell you what your BAC is. But if it doesn't compensate between men and women, it is a fraud, you know, for that right. purpose alone. But more than that, if you have a woman and a guy, generally speaking, the compositions of their body weight is different. In other words, men have more, generally speaking, muscle mass to fat ratio, and women have more fat to muscle ratio. This is just a general rule. I don't mean to offend Mm -hmm. people that are in great shape that are women, but women have, you know, they have breasts, they have wider hips for childbearing or whatever. They just have more fat dispositions than men do. So generally, a man and a woman weighing the same amount, muscle tissue has more blood supply to it than fat tissue does. So even if I'm a guy and I'm a little bit older than most of the people I teach for sure, if I was to point out somebody in the class that's a young man that is my weight, well, he's surely got more muscle ratio than I do because as we get older, we lose muscle and that's just a natural outcome of getting older, right? So even though we weigh the same amount, we're the same sex, actually my BAC would be higher because my blood supply is smaller than his. Well, the same thing for the woman type of thing. So those things are significant in the disposition of of women versus men and BAC. Okay, great. And so going back to, you know, you mentioned food, for example, and talking about like, oh, this will definitely decrease my BAC, or that's like a popular or popularized misconception, I think, where People are always, especially through popular culture, you know, you see this in movies, drink some water and you'll sober up or Mm -hmm. take a cold shower, you're going to sober up. So can you kind of talk about that? And I think there are misconceptions, but I want you to talk about are there ways to sober up quickly and what is the rate that alcohol is removed from your body? Are we really able to get rid of alcohol from our bodies that quickly and through these strange, popularized methods? Well, the short of it is no. Your instinctual thoughts there are correct. There are no ways to sober up fast. You know, the way we get intoxicated is at a different rate, depending on how much you drink and how fast you drink and all of those things we just mentioned. But once that blood alcohol level is whatever it is, alcohol is removed by being passed through the liver in a multi-step metabolic process it's changed eventually into water and carbon dioxide. But that takes time. 
And it's interesting that we can get everybody up to like, let's say a 0.15 BAC, which is twice the legal limit almost, right? You would need less than me. I'm assuming you weigh less than me. But what I'm trying to get at is we can get 20 people in the same room. And depending on their size, their age, and those types of things, we'll get everybody up to a 0.15 BAC. It'll just take Mm -hmm. a different number of drinks, okay? And so once we are all at a 0.15 BAC, even though it took us all different amounts of drinks to get there, a 280-pound person, a lot more than a 140-pound person, right? The amount of their BAC that comes off of it is constant at approximately a 0.015% per hour. So in other words, and again, this is presuming healthy liver function, but at a 0.015 per hour, what that means is if I'm at a 0.15, like we just said, which is almost twice the legal limit, it's going to take 10 hours of sober time for that alcohol BAC to get back down to 0.00. So you can imagine that if you're coming home from a nightclub at two o'clock in the morning at a 0.15 BAC, and you're getting up at, say, 7 o'clock in the morning to be at work at 8 o'clock, and you're on the road at 7.30 in the morning, that's only, Uh what, five and a half hours after you stopped, after you left that club the night before at a 0.15, you're still going to be at the legal limit. Right. So, yeah, it takes a specific amount of time and you can drink coffee, it'll make you more awake, you can get into the shower and take a cold shower and drink coffee and you'll feel more awake. But at the end of the day, the the blood alcohol is, is going to leave at a constant rate. There's a myth too that I think should be addressed. People say we metabolize one drink per hour. Well, as we just <laughs> went through, now that you know all the dynamics of what constitutes right. a blood alcohol concentration, some people at a specific weight may metabolize one drink per hour, but those that weigh more than them or less than them would, would metabolize less or more than one drink per hour, but they all right. metabolize what? 0.015% per hour off their BAC. Great. Thank you for clarifying that for us. Before we continue, we need to take a quick break, a pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back right after this. <laughs> 